Welcome to Ebenezer Baptist Church on Communion Sunday, May 5th, 2013. Today's message is, Be Alive, Jesus Brings Your Neighborhood Back to Life, by Pastor Isaac Whiting, based on Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. Would you please pray with me? Father God, we worship you. And we want to be people who love you. We come to the Bible, your word, today because we want to be changed in our inner being to be like Jesus. We pray that you would lift these words off the page by the power of your Holy Spirit and make them alive in us as your church. And we ask it because of Jesus and in his name. Amen? Amen. We're in the middle of a sermon series called Be Alive sermon series we've been preaching since Easter. Jesus came back to life, and ever since then, he's been bringing different parts of our lives back to life. Your job and your friends and your home. And today, Jesus is going to bring your neighborhood back to life, which is a fantastic thing. We'll be looking at the parable of the Good Samaritan. First, I'd like to show you a picture of a friend of mine, me and a friend of mine. This is my friend, Archie. How many of you have met Archie? Just raise your hand a little bit. Some of you can raise your hands higher than others when it comes to Archie. Archie is a man who needs a lot of help, and he comes to our church kind of has phases. He'll come for a while, and then we won't see him for a while, and then he'll come again for a while. Not on Sunday morning. I don't think he's ever come on Sunday morning, uh, but to the office door. And he's an interesting man because Archie comes, and he just wants to talk. He sometimes asks for money, but even when he asks, it's kind of a joke, and he knows that we're going to say no. He's been coming here longer than I've been here, so more than eight years. I don't know how long he's been coming. His brain is a little bit fried, and he has trouble walking. He is an alcoholic. And I think he's also a Christian. He has a cross tattooed on his forehead, which doesn't make you a Christian. But when he prays, he seems really sincere. He's a little hard to be around because he's always kind of grabbing you. And you can see in this picture, he's about to grab my face with his hand. The next picture, he's sort of holding me. This was just a picture of us on Fraser Street. I asked him if I could take it. Archie still doesn't remember me, even though I've spent hours and hours with him over the years. In fact, he only remembers, the only person he remembers from our church is Jack Mason. 
The dilemma with Archie is, what do you do with him? You know, you're in the middle of a busy day, getting things ready for family night or preparing a sermon, all the other things pastors do, and Archie knocks on the door. And he will literally, if you let him, talk to you for the entire day. Saying the same things over and over again. It's very tempting to simply say, oh, it's Archie, go away. So we've struggled as a staff, as a church. What do we do with him? How much time do we give him? On this particular day, I had somewhere else to be, as you can see from my clothing. I don't normally wear a tie when I just come in during the week. I had somewhere else to be, and I gave that up for a little while. I did get there eventually. And I took Archie up and bought him a sandwich. And, you know, he cried and told me he loved me like he always does. And he didn't remember me the next time I saw him. (laughs) What do you do with Archie? Thank you. Take the picture down now. So we come to the parable of the Good Samaritan today, a parable in which Jesus is trying to teach us something, trying to teach an expert in the law something. It begins with almost no context. We don't know what Jesus has been up to. Luke tells us this happened on one occasion, sometime in his ministry. And this kind of thing happened to Jesus over and over again as he would be teaching. And then someone who was really smart or knew everything about the Bible would come and try to test him and challenge him, lay a trap for him. And that's what happens here. Only the man who lays a trap for him, ah, all of these people who do this, they don't realize who they're laying a trap for. They have so vastly misunderstood what Jesus is saying and who he is and the power that's just in his words that they're really only laying a trap for themselves. And we see that happen in this parable. This person, an expert in the law, a lawyer, says to Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life, Jesus? Here's a tough question for you. In asking this question, the expert in the law is actually using Jesus' own terminology, using Jesus' own language. This is not the way that the lawyers in Jerusalem normally spoke. This is the way that Jesus spoke, eternal life. He's done his homework on Jesus, thinks he knows what Jesus is going to say. Jesus responds with a question. Well, what is written in the law? How do you read it? This man is, of course, a lawyer. His job is to interpret the Bible, interpret the Old Testament, to take all those laws of Moses and tell people what that means specifically for their lives today. That's his job. So Jesus asks him, what do you think it means? And the lawyer responds, again, with words of Jesus, combining two Uh, teachings of the Old Testament that really only Jesus had combined in this particular way. The two commandments that Jesus says are the greatest. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and the second, which is just like it. Love your neighbor 
as yourself. This lawyer must have heard, must have been there, or heard from someone who was there when Jesus had preached this already, the Sermon on the Mount, or maybe various other places he had been. So he responds with Jesus' own answer. Jesus says, unsurprisingly, that's right. You got it. You listened to me. So go and do that. That's all there is. But then we see in verse 29, the lawyer, wanting to justify himself, asks Jesus, who is my neighbor? This isn't maybe as terrible a question as we might think. We might think on first reading this that the lawyer is just trying to justify himself personally. He's trying to make it so he doesn't have to do anything else. But what the lawyer is doing is actually his job. His job is to look at the Old Testament, as I've said, and try to figure out what these laws mean for the present day. He needs a definition. If I'm supposed to go and love my neighbor, then what I need to do is define the word neighbor so that I can figure out what the rule is that I need to follow, and then I can go and follow that rule. And so this is what he asks Jesus for a definition. Now, you've heard it said that there's no such thing as a bad question. That is, however, incorrect. As we see many times from Jesus, Jesus not only answers people's questions, he corrects their questions. And the lawyer has asked the wrong question. Jesus responds with the parable of the Good Samaritan to correct the wrong question. The parable is very well known. I assume most of you know it. It was also very well known when Jesus spoke it. It's known outside the Bible, in other Jewish literature, and maybe was even several hundred years old as a story circulating when Jesus told it. Jesus, however, changes the parable in some specific ways. He begins by saying that there was a man who was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell into the hands of robbers. In the story that had circulated before Jesus, this man was a very specific kind of person. He was a good, upstanding Jewish man. He was a Jewish man. But Jesus strips him of his identity. Jesus says this is simply a man. We don't know his race, we don't know where he's from, or anything that he's done. He falls into the hands of robbers. The robbers strip him of his clothes. This is very important. Not leaving him, probably, entirely naked, but stripping him of all his outer garments. And they beat him. And they beat him so much... Notice the text says in verse 30 that he's left half dead. It maybe is even difficult to tell if he is dead or alive just by looking. 
And after this time, a priest happened to be going down the same road. And he saw the man, and he passed by on the other side. The priest, of course, gets a very bad rap, and he deserves it. But let me try to defend the priest just for a minute. In the first century, many priests who served at the temple lived in the city of Jericho, which was some distance from the city of Jerusalem, where the temple was located. So what the priest is doing is he's actually commuting. He's on his way home from work. He's headed back to the suburbs, Jericho being a rich, upscale suburb of Jerusalem, where all the priests lived. He's traveling on this road. He doesn't do this every day, but perhaps a week on and a week off. He'd go to the temple and stay in Jerusalem for a week and serve there, and then he would go home, and he would stay at home and also have some priestly duties in his hometown. He's commuting to and from work. He sees a man lying on the road, a man who is half dead and has no clothing on. There are two things that are important here that the priest would have no doubt considered as he looked at this man and decided whether or not to help him. The priest had been serving at the temple, and the priests had to be very careful to follow all of the regulations and laws in the Old Testament. In particular, the priests had to be ceremonially clean in order to serve at the temple. If the priest were to go and touch the body of someone who was already dead, he would become ceremonially unclean. He would not be able to serve at the temple or do any of his priestly duties. He would not be able to do his job. And it would take him as much as an entire week to become ceremonially clean again. So the first thing that goes through the priest's mind as he looks at this person, yes, I should help him, I would like to help him, but what if he's already dead? If he's already dead, there's nothing I can do for him. I can't bury him, I'm the priest. Someone else has to come and do that. I can't heal him or bring him anywhere if he's dead, and I will become unclean and not be able to do my job for an entire week. People are depending on me. I have ceremonies to perform when I get to my hometown. I have to be back in Jerusalem at a certain time to, to serve in the temple again. I, I have a busy life. I can't just stop and do this thing. I don't have that much vacation time. Is the man dead or alive? The second problem for the priest is that the man is not wearing any of his outer clothes. Jesus has stripped the man of his identity in two ways in the parable. Not only has he not called the man a Jew, just calling him a man, but he has made it so that the robbers have taken off all of his clothing. In the Middle East, in the first century, the way that you could identify a person, who they were, what race they belonged to, was by their clothing. 
the man has no clothing. The priest cannot tell if this man is Jewish or if he is a Gentile. He cannot go and help a Gentile. He will become ceremonially unclean. So you see his dilemma. He's commuting. You know what it's like when you're commuting. You're driving somewhere. Your destination is in view. You're not worried about the things that are happening right around you. You're in your car. I submit to you the priest is in his car, in his mind, on the way home. He can't stop and be bothered with things on the road. He sees a man, and if the man happens to be a Jewish man who is not dead, it would be okay for him to go help. But he can't tell. He can't tell. And so he makes the sensible decision to pass by on the other side of the road. Don't get close. I don't want to become unclean. After the priest passed by, a little while later, Jesus tells us, a Levite comes down the road, sees the man, and it says in verse 32, so too, in the same way, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. The Levite passes by in just the same way as the priest. What is a Levite? The priest is Pastor Ryan, right? Is me, is the paid staff member at the front leading the service. Who's the Levite? It's Darren. It's the worship team. It's the volunteer leaders who helped out in the temple. The Levites, the assistant priests, if you will. The Levite comes from Jerusalem also to Jericho. Now there's not much between Jerusalem and Jericho in those days. In fact, maybe nothing. If he's coming on presumably the same day as the priest from the temple where the priest was serving, do you think that he knew the priest? Going to the town where the priest lives? In all likelihood, they had just seen each other earlier that day at the temple. Oh, you're headed home to Jericho? Okay, see you later. Let's have dinner tonight when, when I get back too. Could the Levite help this man? The Levite has several problems and several great excuses. First of all, the priest didn't help the man. If the pastor didn't help someone, you would be upstaging him. If you did it, what would he do? What would happen when he put this Levite on a horse and brought him into Jericho, saving his life, or put the man, sorry, and brought him into Jericho, saving his life? The Levite comes in, the man who the pastor had left on the side of the road. Oh, we're going to have problems in Jericho tonight. Not only that, it's the perfect excuse. The pastor knows better than me. 
I don't have to think about the Bible or what God would want me to do because the pastor's already thought about it and he figured it out. And the right answer is pass by on the other side of the road. I know that the pastor already went by this guy and didn't help him, so I'm going to do exactly the same thing. I'm going to do just what my leader does. And then, of course, enters the Samaritan, the good Samaritan. You'll remember that the Samaritans and the Jewish people are bitter enemies at this point in history. The Samaritans are hated by the Jews. This is a Jewish area, so the Samaritan is in foreign territory. He is not near his home. He is in enemy territory where he is discriminated against, looked down upon. The Jewish people saw the Samaritans as really bad people, no doubt because they had done a lot of bad things many of them. But the Samaritan comes and he has a completely different mindset. The Samaritan doesn't think about what the rules are. He doesn't try to interpret scripture on the spot. Maybe he's on vacation. I don't know. He's not worried about where he's going. He's not commuting in his mind. And he simply sees a man who he can't tell if he's alive or dead, what race he's from. He sees a man and he loves him. And he goes and he helps him. He helps him at extreme personal cost and risk. Do you see that in the story? Extreme personal cost. Not only does he have to give up whatever it was he was doing, wherever he was planning to go, he has to use his precious supplies of oil and wine, very expensive. I guess that was kind of what you did for everything in the first century. It's what you drink, what you eat, it's the medicine you pour on someone too. Wraps him up, bandages him. He has to spend the better part of a day perhaps carrying him somewhere. He has to take him to an inn and he has to pay for him to stay there. In the first century, if someone were abandoned at an inn, at a hotel, a local place, it was a common practice if they couldn't pay their bill to simply sell them into slavery to pay for what they, the expenses they had incurred. So the Samaritan not only has to spend all this time, but he has to pay quite a lot of money to help this person that he doesn't even know. And think about how much money he spends on this man. Now, I don't need to, we don't need to get into exactly what two denarii is worth, but just think about it. If he's going to leave this guy in a hotel, room and board, for maybe a week, how much money would that cost? In our terms, we're talking about hundreds and hundreds of dollars. Would you spend that much money on someone who was lying on the side of the road? You were driving by on your commute home. And then finally, consider that the Samaritan is demonstrating Jesus' love, the way Jesus defines it, risking his life for someone he cares about. How is he risking his life? Remember that he is hated by the Jewish people. Where is he going to take this guy? 
There's nothing else between Jerusalem and Jericho. He's going to take him to Jericho. Who's in Jericho? The priest and the Levite who already passed by. You've got the enemy who's going to show up the pastor and the deacon. Not only that, consider how much these people are hated. You've got to grab hold of the, of the racial tension that's going on in this story. One writer, one commentator who wrote about this suggested that we compare it to cowboys and Indians in the Old West. Cowboys and Native Americans. Now imagine, imagine that the guy who was attacked is a Jew, right? Imagine he's a cowboy, and he's been beaten almost to death, and a Native American stumbles upon him. And the Native American binds up his wounds and puts him on a horse and rides him into Dodge City. All of the cowboys come out of the bar first thing in the morning after a night of playing cards and drinking with their guns on their hips, and what they see is a Native American with a cowboy bleeding on his horse. What's going to happen? The Samaritan is risking his life to save this man who he doesn't even no. Jesus tells us in this story that we must love our neighbor as ourself. The lawyer has asked the wrong question. Who is my neighbor? The right question is how can I become a neighbor? The lawyer has asked, who is my neighbor? What rule do I have to follow? And Jesus has answered with, that's the wrong question. The right question is, how can you be changed in your inner being so that you are the kind of person who would do this incredible thing? It's not about rules. It's about who you are. Jesus' command to love your neighbor as yourself. I want to say something about this command. Often we've taken this command, love your neighbor as yourself, to simply mean that we have to love everyone. And I want to say that that's not what it means. If Jesus had wanted to say to us, you need to love everyone, he could easily have said that. The words existed in both Aramaic and Greek for him to say exactly that. But instead, he said, I want you to love your neighbor. Why? What is the difference? You cannot love everyone. God can love everyone because God is infinite and he is in every place and every time. But you are only in one place. Right now, you are in a pew or walking around in the narthex, and you are right now here in one place. Jesus is commanding you to love your neighbor, 
the ones who are near you. Because that's all that you can do. Jesus gives us this command and this parable. What does it mean for us today? Where do we find ourselves? What situation does this speak to in our lives today? Will I dare to become like the lawyer? We find ourselves today in a society where neighbor, the very idea of it, and neighborhoods have collapsed and fallen apart. The book and the person who has best explained this, I think, is a man named Robert Putnam in a book called Bowling Alone. Bowling Alone. In this book, he talks about how community in North America has collapsed and fallen apart over the last 60 years. The book is entitled Bowling Alone because in the 1950s and today, Americans, not sure about Canadians, bowled about the same amount, about the same percentage of Americans went bowling in the 1950s and in the early 2000s. But in the 1950s, the vast majority of those bowlers were bowling in leagues with large circles of friends that they were connected to. And in the early 2000s, the vast majority of those bowlers were bowling alone, by themselves literally or just with their family, no friends, no no organized circle of community. The book tracks what many of us know from experience, that community, civic involvement, social life have collapsed over the last 50 years. The book, interestingly, gives five sources for this collapse, five things that have caused this. I'll tell you what they are. He says first that cars and urban sprawl have been a significant factor. People are commuting more, like the priest. They're in a mindset where they can't, or even in a place inside their car where they can't say hi to someone on the street. He also says that TV and Internet have caused a significant portion of this decline. We often have many false relationships. You feel like you know some of these people you watch on TV. You're interested in their lives. You care about the actors, and you know who their latest boyfriend or girlfriend was. Many of you. You don't really know them. They've never heard of you. TV and Internet have caused us to relate less with each other. Changes in family structure also have contributed to this significantly. It turns out that the family structure that is most conducive to knowing other people and being in community with others is a mother and a father and children all living together. Surprise, surprise. Generational change. You might find this one interesting. This is number four of five things he says have contributed to this. 
It turns out that when they run all the numbers and do all the research over decades, it turns out that the generation that grew up in the 1940s, 50s, 60s, those generations are just more social and more community-minded than me and people younger than me. They think it's because we grew up with TV, where the older generations did not. But the generations have just changed. And the last, I think important for us in our context, that has contributed to the collapse of neighborhood is racial diversity. When there are many different races in the same place, the natural tendency of human beings is to hide in their homes, is to not go out, not become involved as much as they would have. The Vancouver Sun, you may know, a couple of years ago, ran a whole series of articles on this problem, in particular in our city. People not knowing each other, people feeling isolated. All of these things have been factors, have contributed to this. And this is the place we find ourselves in as Jesus speaks this parable to us of the Good Samaritan, tells us that we need to become neighbors, become the kind of people who are neighbors to each other. The four points we've had in each of these sermons, what we should do in response to this, because we know it is not enough just to read the word of God on Sunday morning. We have to do it. We can't walk out this door and just forget about it like a person looking in the mirror and then forgetting what they look like, but we have to go and do it and even do it right away. The four things. First, we must die. We must die to our own busyness, to our own plans, to that kind of mindset that the priest had. He is caught up in himself and what he has to do, and he's not even present in the world around him. He is in a state of mind that doesn't allow him to stop when God brings someone into his life. We have to die to that mindset. Second, we have to be open to God. Once that mindset has died in us, we need to be constantly open to what God is doing around us. He is in control of everything that happens in the world. Whoever comes into your path, whoever is near you, is not by accident. We need to be open to God and always on the lookout for where God is calling us to go and love and care and be like Jesus. And third, We need to do it out of joy. This is very important in the parable. Jesus is not giving another law. We cannot go and love our neighbor just because the Bible says we have to. That is not enough, and it is not what Jesus is telling us to do. We have to seek God and become the kind of people who want to do that in our very hearts. That is the way of Jesus, the only way of Jesus. 
And how can we do it? How can we become those kinds of people? Well, by following him, of course, in his mission. Jesus is out there doing this already. Have you ever thought about this in the parable? Who is the good Samaritan? He's Jesus. He's the one who comes from the outside, a stranger who walks in and is willing to dive into the dirtiest, messiest things of life to help and save someone who's almost dead. He's willing to risk his life to do it, to give everything to do it. The good Samaritan is Jesus. And Jesus is out there right now doing this all around us. We need to find him and join in the mission that he is already doing because then he can teach us to be in our hearts people who are like him. He can teach us how to be a neighbor. Let's pray. Father God and Lord Jesus Christ, please have mercy on us. Renew our hearts and make them like yours. Amen.